I'm Glenn Bowerman, and this is a Spacing Radio Municipal Election Special. Welcome back, everyone, to another special election panel of Spacing Radio. I'm here today with John Lawrence, who is a Spacing Senior Editor, and Lorraine Lamb, who is a community organizer in Toronto. Uh, welcome both. Hi, Hi, thanks for having us. Uh, I wanted to begin, uh, just because uh, E-Day is creeping up pretty fast, uh, I wanted to begin by just asking you guys how how your election's been. Have you heard from candidates? Uh, what have you seen? Has anything, uh, you know, stuck out for you? Well, um, I just pulled up a list of all the people running. There's apparently 31 people listed, and I'm going to be really honest. I have heard of maybe mostly nobody on here. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I think that probably accurately describes how I'm feeling about the elections right now. Like, um, I just feel like all these other candidates haven't really presented much of a platform, um, not really given us any reason to you know, even investigate deeper into what they're doing. I would say maybe Gil is the closest or the most that I've heard from. I don't know. What are you thinking, John? Well, I do hear from people because they cover this. Um, the, you know, I think that the volume of the the campaign has turned down pretty low for a couple of reasons. One is that, uh, you know, Tory has turned down most of two debate invitations and they've both been, you know, basically just streamed midday. So they don't yeah. really get a lot of attention. Um, the second reason is that, um, you know, there, so there, there are wards in the city, which are very contested, like University Rosedale, mm-hmm. like hot race going on in Tobacco South. There are other races, which are, you know, pretty quiet. You know, I live in St. Paul's and, you know, it's just a cakewalk for Josh. And the final thing I'll say is that um, Gil Peloza has, that a kind of an interesting thing because he's invited people to download, you know, PDFs for his signs and so on, or make their own signs, but consequent, and this is a, you know, it's like a, um, you know, it's about resources and so on. And, mm-hmm. uh, but it means that the visual environment's pretty quiet. There's not, I don't think I've seen a Gil Penelos' sign, uh, handmade or otherwise. So, you know, it's pretty, uh, it's a pretty muted election. Personally, uh, I haven't seen you know anyone stumping uh, to be my uh, local counselor, uh, but uh, someone pointed out on on Twitter that uh, with the new, well, I guess they're four years old now, but uh, the redrawn ward system, uh, that's a lot of ground to cover for any one council uh, mm-hmm. candidate. Uh, so I, I can't really fault them for for not showing up at my specific doorstep, but it also doesn't bode well for anyone who eventually gets the job. Granted, they'll have uh, staff to to help them kind of reach out and and organize in that way. But uh, uh, yeah, that's it's a lot of ground to cover for an election, and it's a, a lot of ground to cover when when they actually get the job. Mm-hmm. I like that you brought up the, the debates as well, John, because I think one of the things I've been thinking about is like you know even if I wanted to hear more, well, I do want to hear more from these other people running for mayor and I want to hear what they're thinking. And so, yes, there's the debates haven't happened, but also the ones that have happened have been during the day when most people are working jobs that don't allow them to actually tune in. And so for me, that's 
I mean, I have questions about how that was decided and why. And I think that in itself actually really limits the scope of who can actually participate meaningfully in, in this whole process. Here's the thing about the debates is that, you know, four years ago, uh, you know, most of us weren't on Zoom, uh, thank God. And now we're all on Zoom and we know how to record it. So the, both the debates are, you know, they're alive and well and living on YouTube and, you know, can be viewed later in the day. And I've tried to sort of retweet uh, the links to some of those, you know, so to get them in broader circulation. But, you know, Lorraine, I take the point about this and, and you know, they've been pretty low key. I mean, the other thing that I'd say is that voting and participating in an election is a two-way street, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, we as voters and residents of the city have to go out and find this information. We can't just hope that it's sort of presented to us. You know, in some ways that's easier than ever because you could just, you know, you can, you know, you can check out people's websites. You can find out what they stand for. You can look at their social media platforms. But you know, you're right that the opportunities to engage personally are very few and far between. Now, I heard a funny anecdote about this the other day that Gil has been like running around, like literally running around the city, and uh, apparently uh, has turned up on subway cars handing out his business card. And so I, I ran into a guy who met him twice. Like, imagine the odds, right? So I think we could all agree that this is unlikely to happen with the mayor. <laughs> In a large part, what this election is about is is a you know a referendum on the last eight years of John Tory. John Tory's uh, slogan, um, his slogan this year is uh, John Tory working for you. So I wanted to ask you both: uh, Has John Tory been working for you? I mean, no. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, like you know, it's pretty unclear what. He thinks he's doing for me, but as somebody who, you know, worked in the last decade in this sector with people who are unhoused, as someone who cycles around the city, um, as somebody who does not, you know, work in a job that's very high paying, living in Toronto is really hard. And Tori hasn't really done anything for me um, to make it very livable. So, no, I don't think Tori has been working for me. Um, and I would actually say I don't think Tori's been working for a lot of people who um, are less than wealthy and a lot of people who are not necessarily um, more privileged and have more access to things. I don't think Tori has been working for us. You know, and to be honest, I feel like Tori has sort of been coasting. Like, he's kind of let status quo happen. He hasn't done anything, you know, incredibly radical, in a positive way, I think he's made some terribly, radically bad decisions around his approach to housing and homelessness. But um, yeah, he's definitely hasn't worked for me. I don't know, John, has he worked for you? <laughs> so, um, like, I want to look at this question in two ways and to give credit where credit's due. Um, so in, you know, March 2020, we went into this pandemic. And the thing that I appreciated about the way the city handled the pandemic is that uh, you know, the senior people were uh, communicating a lot. They were on the same page. They weren't kind of playing sort of footsie with the anti-vaxxer crowd and the anti-pandemic, you know, the anti-masking crowd. And, you know, Tori was visible, right, from his apartment with his weird haircut. And um, uh, so I think that that was a, you know, that was a time when nobody had a roadmap, right? Nobody knew 
what was ahead and how to deal with all of this. And I think that, you know, he, he did take that responsibility on. Um, I think that um, Lorraine, to your point that, you know, he, he's very managerial. He's very, very incremental. Um, There are like these big blind spots in his approach to, um, you know, to running the city. And, you know, as I argued in my column the other day that I think that the, you know, we've seen like for many, many years, this fixation on tax increases that are just under the rate of inflation. And, you know, we, what it did is, is that it created no room for error, right? There was no buffer. And so that to my mind is Tory not working in the interests of the city writ wide, right? Like it, I mean, for full disclosure, I own a house, I'm sitting in it. Um, and so as a homeowner, right, he's looking out for my interests because he keeps my property taxes from growing quickly. But that's not, you know, so that's my personal financial interest. It's not the interest of the city as a whole. And I would prefer that he would look at the latter as opposed to the former. Uh, yeah, I read something uh, kind of shocking uh, in the Globe and Mail by Oliver Moore and Jeff Gray uh, saying that uh, the planned state of good repair backlog is going to be uh, $13 billion, which is just a staggering number. And it's it's always been bad in the last, you know, every year we have some kind of headline like this about how much we're, we're letting things slide. But it really makes me wonder if John Tory is reelected, um, you know, how how far can we keep kicking uh, a growing can down the road? And and should he skate on this? Should, you know, can can we responsibly reelect someone who has, uh, you know, along with uh, his, the councillors that back him on every budget year after year, can, can we let him get away with this? And and for how long? Yeah, I'm just thinking about what you just said earlier too. You know, and that some of his decisions have really benefited you individually, but collectively it hasn't been good. And I. My hope actually is that we start to see that, you know, living in a city, we're all sort of wrapped up in each other's well-being, right? Like there's varying neighborhoods of, and different homeowners who, you know, are upset about new shelters in their in their area or upset about seeing needles on the ground. And well, you know what, like if we don't like seeing that, then it's really important that we actually think about the collective better. And so, yeah. And so I was just thinking about that point you made earlier and that like, I don't think Tori, Tori might have just like, you know, looked out for specific groups of people's interests, but I definitely would agree that um, as a whole, it hasn't been great. And I, I don't think we can afford to continue on this path that we're in. I just don't see how this gets better. Um, You know, just as we look sort of ahead, like as we see inflation happening, we see COVID numbers rising again. We know um, I spend a lot of time in the housing and homelessness sector and like seeing that September's numbers Um, have peaked once again in terms of the highest number of people turned away from being able to access shelter. That's really problematic. And we're entering the winter season when we know a lot of these spaces are about to close and there's no plan for this. You know, when these programs started, so much money was poured into, you know, really short-term solutions instead of looking at long-term solutions. And, you know, when we talk about counselors who support Tories you know, ideals and and vote certain ways. We also know that at city staff level, his whole staff team also supported. And sometimes counselors don't even seem to have much knowledge of what is happening. So, you know, when people in Toronto witnessed some pretty aggressive encampment evictions last summer, 
we've seen through FOIs that a lot of counselors didn't even know that this was happening. So it was Tori and his very close, small group of close-knit staff who made these decisions and like counselors aren't even aware. And so I have questions around what accountability looks like um, for actually everybody at city level. Right. I mean, the shelter example is, I think, speaks exactly to what John was saying about, you know, just doing the bare minimum, which is kind of fine as long as everything goes right and nothing ever goes right, you know, (laughs) (laughs) something, you know, the, the other shoe is bound to drop eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we're we're starting to see that, <laughs> if not already. I mean, the other thing, you know, just sort of to rise up to 40,000 feet is that the city is undertaxed, right? Like we, you know, compared to, you know, 905 municipalities, lots of other places, I mean, we don't tax homeowners nearly enough. Um, you know, the development industry, you know, jumps up and shouts a lot about development charges. But, I mean, we leave a ton of money on the table. Um, and so... I mean, Toronto is sought after, right? People want to live here. That's why the housing prices are high. That's why land values are high. And, you know, I think the city doesn't really politically, for some reason, doesn't want to capture, any, so you know, a lot of that value. And, I mean, the other thing that I, I would say is that, you know, this old expression, you know, knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing is very much, it runs deep and you know, in local politics, right, where we, I mean, I just read, I did a thread today about, um, you know, cell service in the subways, right, I was, you know, I was traveling last week in Mexico City, you know, lots of, lots of cities in the world where you could just, you know, you could continue using your phone, right, Um, and, you know, that's not about, you know, oh, I want to talk loud on my phone while I'm on the subway, I mean, it's about, you know, doing work or getting, you know, contacting people, and, you know, we have like this cheapest system, which is supposed, which is ad supported, right? And in all sorts of other places, it's like, you know, they invested the money. It's like a basic utility. It's available in the subways. Like, why can't we do that? We don't want to spend the money. And that's a culture that's really, um, it's deep seated, but it has, it really finds expression in somebody like Tori. It's like, he is the body of that ethic. Yeah. Well, um, Lorraine mentioned the the encampment evictions uh, the, the, during the pandemic, um, and I was really hoping that this would be a major election issue, uh, and since it hasn't been, uh, and this is the last panel that we're doing before the election, let's make it an election issue as best we can, uh, because that was something that, um, you know, L- Lorraine, you, you work with the unhoused people, uh, I think in my community, I, I happen to live in Moss Park, uh, so I, I don't work with unhoused people, but, you know, they're, they're my neighbors, that's, that's my hood. Um, I wanted there to be repercussions for everyone who uh, was responsible for that at any level, either through action, uh, as you know, Tori and, and as you say, the his team seemed to be, uh, as well as people um, through inaction. Uh, the councillors, the you know, ostensibly progressive left downtown councillors that uh, either seemed to have no idea this was going on, as you said, Lorraine, or uh, you know, waited until. Uh, these these evictions uh, violently occurred and then sort of said like, oh, we, you know, we, we wish it had happened in a nicer, gentler way. Um, not that it shouldn't have happened at all. So I, I was just disappointed uh, at every level uh, by how that went down. And, uh, you know, it, uh, it cost something to the tune of $2 million uh, for these evictions uh, in in uh, Trinity, Bellwoods and, and other parks. Uh, 
And uh, we're still, I believe, paying for private security in, in some parks to uh, try to keep people from uh, establishing new encampments. Um, I haven't heard a lot about it uh, from uh, any of the council candidates, from any of the mayoral can- candidates. Gil Penalosa did uh, say that he would support the the path forward, uh, as it was called, uh, which uh, Lorraine, uh, for our listeners, I think you'd probably be best uh, suited to explain what, what the path forward was and how that came about. Yeah, so a pathway forward, um, you know, a number of organizations and drop-ins um, and individuals across the city signed on to it, essentially insisting that, like, the way to support individuals who are living in encampments is that we have to do it in a humane way and that what we witnessed with all of the policing and the arresting and the surveillance recognizing and saying that that is not okay and that we actually need a different approach especially if we want to be working towards real solutions that's sort of what it is in a nutshell and that came out of you know seeing the number of pretty inappropriate and outright wrong ways of evicting people from camps and insisting that there's a better way forward um, the mayor was not supportive of that. I mean, he is on the record saying that the way that Trinity Bellwoods happened was a compassionate approach. And, you know, most of us who were there that day definitely disagree. Um, but that is the essence of what the Path Forward um, proposal is about. Essentially recognizing, too, that, like, you know, displacing people from parks, you're simply moving them to a different park. So it's not really a solution. And so actually back to what John was saying earlier in terms of, like, where the city chooses to spend money, it's the priorities seem to be all wrong because there's no, there doesn't seem to be any problems in throwing money at private security guards and and cops to like arrest people for sleeping in a park when they have nowhere else to go. But yet we're unwilling to actually put the money in to try to offer any services or supports for people. Multiple drop-ins just got funding slashed as well, so um, city funding for, to a lot of places are cut. And so, you know, there is a housing program in Moss Park that's all of a sudden just going to disappear now. Um, so what are what are people supposed to do and why are we choosing to spend money on anything but actual solutions? You know, the place where I want to take this particular conversation is that it's pretty much, a, to my mind, an example of this sort of extreme end point of a whole bunch of things that came together over many years. And, you know, when the pressure of the pandemic sort of kind of came down we had this like terrible problem um and that the city went to these extreme lengths about it so i mean i would hope that we would learn something right so 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 part of the issue is you know inadequate um sort of inadequate supports from provincial government right so the you know the um the lack of them not coming to the uh, disabilities uh uh uh, the, the disability stipend, uh, you know, welfare rates, all of that, they're not living, you can't live on those amounts, right? So um, so that's a problem. The the problem longstanding of, you know, in house neighborhoods of just extreme resistance to any kind of supportive housing. And, you know, the federal government came through with this money for the rapid housing for um, you know, for supportive housing for people who are hard to house and haven't are unhoused, you know, happened quickly in the pandemic. And it, you know, the city's planning apparatus is so cumbersome, right? That the provincial government had to do these MZOs to override 
you know, these restrictions and, and then it gets built and it's good. And so we it, like, I, you know, we should have been doing that 15 years ago, creating a lot more housing, doing it sort of, you know, there's this whole sort of school of thought about housing first, which Lorraine, I'm sure you know, right. So this, this notion that, you know, the, the societal costs of homelessness are far greater than the operating costs of providing housing for people. And, um, deeply, uh, deeply su like supportive housing, deeply affordable housing. Um, so that's all upstream and we were not paying any attention to it. And, uh, you know, the pivot moment, which I think is very obvious to me, it's like super obvious, is that we now need to le learn these lessons for the next time, right? And then do something about them. And, you know, there's very little I hear from Tori that suggests that he sees the thing that has happened in the last two years, two and a half years, as evidence of things that were not done properly mm -hmm. a generation ago or 10 years ago. And that now we have to sort of take that, we have to learn that lesson and change course. Um, so we don't do this again in 10 years and 20 years and you know, five years, who knows? Um, mm -hmm. that's, that's, kind of my, that's kind of my take on the, um, the encampments issue. Yeah, and I also feel like Tori is, hasn't been someone who has been open to any kind of dialogue or criticism. Um, if anything, you know, whenever someone critiques a policy that he's made or a decision that he made that he makes, he often does not actually engage in meaningful ways, right? He often just kind of deflects and says, well, those people need to stop complaining and actually work towards a solution. He never, so I don't actually get a sense you know, along the lines of what you're saying, John, I don't get a sense that he's actually willing to even recognize that he hasn't recognized that this is part of a big, bigger problem. And I don't get a sense that he's going to do anything differently should he be reelected in the next election next week. Right. So let, me, let me just say this. Yeah, about, please. Uh, just to pull this thread a little bit further. So, um, you know, so we've had all this conversation about the not really strong mayor powers, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, so, so I remembered the acronym, it's ODSP. Um, so, you know, we have very inadequate um, sort of ODSP rates, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and part of that expresses itself with homelessness. And so he could stand up and say to the province, you know what, you have got to use your taxing power. You've got progressive taxing power to address this problem because the ODSP and the other, you know, housing supports have just not kept up with inflation. They, you can't live on mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. and, but he's not going to do that because yeah. it's not consistent with provincial policy and he's not going to challenge Doug Ford. And mm -hmm. like, that's a huge problem. It's like a huge problem about not advocating for everybody in the city. I mean, the mayor is the mayor of all the people, right? The mayor's, mm -hmm. Be, be you of people who um, had to live in ravines, the mayor of all the people, and he needs to advocate for all the people. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Like when I said earlier at the start that I was like, I feel like John Tory hasn't really done anything revolutionary or radical. He's honestly just coasted through his mayoral terms. And I don't get a sense that he's ever going to stand up to the province either. To me, like his interests are in about maintaining power. Um, they're not really about actually making positive changes. And I think to me, like I, I don't feel like he's a mayor that 
that actually has the interests of everyone at heart. And I don't feel like he's someone who's willing to rock the boat, which in my mind is what good leadership is willing to, to rock the boat and make some, you know, make some, make some changes. And yeah, I don't think that's what we're going to see if he gets reelected. Right. Well, uh, thinking about what John said uh, about, you know, planning for the next crisis, we're not technically out of the current crisis. The pandemic's still (laughs) raging on. Uh, We are now approaching the winter months uh, where predictably uh, shelter becomes, uh, you know, a matter of life and death. It's Canada. It gets cold, Uh, you know, although it can can be a matter of life and death all year round, of course. Um, But, uh, you know, in the headlines, we're closing shelters. We're closing hotel spaces that were used for shelters. And uh, every year, we we seem to be way over capacity. uh, And people are literally left out in the cold. We're now like, I I don't claim to have a a great economic mind. uh, But uh, I I keep hearing tell of, uh, you know, an impending inflation crisis that uh, could affect a lot of people. So uh, we're not out of the previous crisis. There's a lot of crisis coming, and it's it's getting colder. It's you know winter is coming. It seems that whoever the next mayor is and the next council, um, this is a this is a problem that has to be solved now. Like we can't just keep admitting that uh, a certain amount of of people dying is just the price of business in, in a major metropolitan city. You know what's shocking to me is last winter we had. Um, Somebody froze to death at a bus shelter on Sherburne, just on Sherburne and Queen. There was, you know, doctors at St. Mike's were speaking up about the number of hypothermia cases they were seeing and the number of people who were just, you know, trying to stay warm in the emergency um, triage room. Our mayor nor and city council, nobody really expressed anything about that. Um, you know, a lot of people who work in the sector pushed really hard to get this in the news. They even interviewed, like, Dr. Stephen Wong from St. Mike's about it. Um, and there was really not much of a response from the powers that be, um, except for the usual, you know, uh, we're doing our best. And I think recently there was another article that was um, released in the Star, written by Victoria Gibson, who, again, talked about the increasing numbers of people in the shelter system. And they interviewed Gord Tanner, who works for um, SSHA as part of the city who has sort of deflected it and then painted a narrative that framed refugees as the problem for the shelter crisis. But then yet he said, but this problem has always been here. So it almost feels like we have people in positions of power who are saying, yes, we know there is a crisis. There's been a crisis for a really long time. And then that's it. And there's, there's nothing more. And so, you know, as we look towards the winter for people who are working in the sector and organizing and trying to support all the people who are going to be displaced from the closing of some of these spaces, you know, how many people are going to freeze on our streets this year before something changes? And this isn't even news to us anymore. Like every year we know this is about to happen. We know it's going to happen. And yet it feels like we're just kind of shouting into a void of of like, you know, people who aren't willing to listen. And that's, that's really frustrating. This is a point you made, Lorraine. And I mean, I think it's a point that Tory himself would agree with, which is that he's not radical and he's not, um, you know, he's not given to big changes. Um, you know, there was this expression that came up in the 2008 financial crisis where, you, you know, people were saying, don't waste a crisis. And, you know, we wasted, we're, we're wasting a crisis. We wasted a crisis. Like we saw cities all over the world respond in very dramatic and intentional ways 
to the pandemic by changing, you know, for example, changing much of their transportation networks and, you know, kind of fidgeted around the edges a little bit, you know, did just enough to, you know, keep the progressives sort of quiet um, and then stopped. And then now it's like, okay, let's go back to the way things were. Um, And, you know, on the homelessness thing, I mean, the, the two players that made those modular shelters possible were the federal and provincial governments, not the city, right? And, um, you know, so they recognized that there was a crisis that you had to do something differently. And so, you know, so there are three orders of government and now waiting for us to figure it out, but I don't think that that's going to happen. And I guess we're also not seeing Tory being willing to even push the envelope with the other levels of government either, right? So that's, I think, that's where things feel very stuck. Like, we recognize that, you know, housing money has to flow from all three levels of government, but yet we have a municipal government who isn't going to be willing to challenge any of that and is going to make decisions around policing and spending on security that, frankly, is rather silly and a waste of waste of money. Let's tie this all back to sort of where we began, because, uh, you know, John, you're in your most recent column, you, you wrote that we finally have a ballot question, which kind of was a pe- people's complaint throughout this election was, well, what is this about? Um, so for you, John, what what is the ballot question uh, to your mind? And then, uh, you know, to, to Lorraine, you know, what, what would you hope would be the ballot question yourself uh, and, and from, from your perspective? Cities are not just collections of buildings, private buildings, right? There's the... You know, cities are buildings plus public space. And when we say public space, like I'm talking, I'm using a very broad definition, not just parks and sidewalks. It's the public realm. It's the civic realm. And the the city's approach fiscally for a long time, and it predates Tory, but Tory really, you know, kind of emphasizes it, is that, is that the city's resources are dedicated to private things, right? And you know, and then if there's some left over, there's some public investment. And I think there's another way of looking at that, which is that we need to really think about investing much more and adequately and then generously in the public spaces and the civic spaces of the city, which means includes shelters that are humane and that are, you know, that are places that, and housing, deeply affordable housing and, you know, parks and public spaces and transit and all of these things. And if we, you know, if we persist in the mindset that we could do it all on the cheap, then that's the city we get. And we're seeing the price of that now. Like there's no question in my mind. We're seeing the cost of that. And that's the ballot question is, is do we want that cheap city or do we want like a, an actual grown up city that, that recognizes that the private is not the end of the story. Lorraine, does that sound right to you? Yeah, I love that idea about like, you know, not not wanting to be in a cheap city. It's funny because, you know, a lot of people locally will be like, oh, we love European cities. Look at how great it is where you can just walk around everywhere and ride bikes everywhere. And and here we are. We have, there are ways that we can make our city that way, but yet we refuse to. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that I'm thinking a lot about is, you know, throughout the start of the pandemic, we heard this often where you know, the mayor and other city councillors would say, oh, we're, we're all in this together, you know, that stuff along that, that framework. And it was very clear that that's very untrue, especially as the pandemic progressed. We're not in this together. Um, there's a few small groups of people who maybe are, but most of the rest of the city are just 
out here trying to fend for themselves. And so I would love to see leadership that is actually in it to find ways that we can be in the city together. And that might mean actually making some more costly investments like in transportation, you know, investing in public spaces, all of those things I think matter. Yeah. So that's what I, that's what I would hope for to see in this election is my question. Before we go, uh, Lorraine, do you have anything to uh, promote? Are you working on a book or you have a book coming out? Oh yeah. So um, it's not me. I contributed to it, which is really exciting. Um, so it's called Displacement City. It's um, going to be officially released on November 22nd, which is National Housing Day. So I co-wrote a chapter for it. Um, there's about over 30 contributors to this book. So uh, from lawyers to um, housing workers to doctors and nurses and a whole number of people who were living in the encampments through the early beginnings of the pandemic. Um, so it's a really, really powerful collection of stories and written work. So definitely encourage people to check it out. The book release launch date is going to be November 9th at Church of the Holy Trinity, where the Homeless Memorial is. So people are welcome to show up at noon there to gather and celebrate the book launch. It, it was hard to write the book because, as you said earlier, the pandemic's not over, but it was a, a reflection of a lot of what we were seeing in the early early days as we tried to rally together to figure out how to really actually be in this together when a lot of us were left on our own. And uh, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Lorraine Lambchop. Very professional sounding, I know. Um, or you can find me on Instagram at Lorraine Lambchops. And uh, John, do you have anything to plug before we go? Well, I've two projects. Um, one is Dream States, which is this, uh, this book I wrote about smart cities and urban technology. And it grew out of the Atkinson Fellowship that I had in 2019 and 2020. And uh, on a lighter note, I edited a collection of writings about dumplings, and which is Ooh. called Talk About When We Talk About Dumplings. And it, it was actually uh, released, the pub date was yesterday, um, and there's going to be a launch uh, after your show broadcasts. But it it's in all good bookstores, and it's not a cookbook. It's a book about what we talk about when we talk about dumplings, which it turns out is a lot of different things. There's a lot of people on my uh, holiday shopping list that uh, I think are going to get a copy of that one. Oh my gosh, I just Googled it. It's so funny because um, I had this conversation with my partner years ago and I'm like, I was talking about dumplings and he's like, oh, they're like pierogies. And I was like, well, I guess technically they're kind of the same, but they're not the same. So I'm excited about this. Second and third cousins. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then finally, uh, I will plug that uh, on election night uh, on uh, October 24th, after hopefully everyone, uh, you know, goes and casts their ballot, Spacing will be hosting an election viewing party uh, at uh, Popper's Pub. That's uh, 539 Bloor Street West in Toronto. So all are welcome. Uh, Come find us, uh, have a pint or a pop or whatever you like. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this shakes out and uh, either celebrate or commiserate together as, uh, as the case may be. <laughs> In the meantime, uh, Lorraine and John, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so Thanks much. Fun. And that is the show. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this election special, please tell your friends and share it around on social media. Let's get people out to the polls. 
I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca, where we have non-stop election coverage. Visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, and don't forget to pick up our special election issue of the magazine. Cheers. Cheers.